Again, I want to welcome you to church this morning. Um, if you've been around, you know that we're in this series, um, not only for the month of, of January and a little bit into February, but kind of our theme for the year is this theme, Made for This. And we've been talking about this idea that all of us are made by God and for God, and we are made to glorify God. That's really what we're made for. Um, and so we're talking about that from all different directions. Today's uh, topic was actually supposed to be made for service, and uh, Steve Steele was the scheduled preacher for the day, but he is homesick. And so um, in actually kind of a, a real turn of, of good news. I actually think that the message that we have this morning is a really important one and one that, that I, I should have been a part of this series from the beginning, kind of got bumped, um, but it shouldn't because we want to talk this morning about the fact that we are made for this moment, that we are made for this time and this place in which we are living right now. And you may remember a couple weeks ago, I shared even just some of my heart personally that, that these are hard times to live in. There is a lot to be discouraged about. There are a lot of things we don't like about this season that we're living in. There are maybe things you don't like about either your season in life or your place or all kinds of things. There's stuff that we would want to change. But we have to remember that we were not only made to glorify God, but God put us here and we are made to glorify God in this moment, right? We are the church, like it or not, that God has chosen for this time and this season in history. And so rather than run away from that, rather than say, I want to get out of that, how do we lean into that? And so that's going to be our topic for this morning. Not only are we made to glorify God, but we are made to glorify God in this moment, in this time, and in this place. And we're going to talk about the book of Esther to kind of help us um, get to that this morning. Uh, But I want to start by showing you a picture that actually appeared on the cover of the Saturday night. Saturday Evening Post, back when that was a very popular magazine, in 1954. It's obviously a a Norman Rockwell painting. And while that appeared almost 70 years ago, to me there is something just especially timeless about that picture. Look closely at it, because what you'll see is a little girl, or is she a young lady? And she's struggling with thoughts about beauty and identity, and maybe even with the question, what am I made for. Notice kind of tossed to the side. It's kind of sad when you see it there. On the floor is the the girl's doll, the little girl's doll. And now at her feet is her hairbrush and makeup. And she's examining this new lipstick that she's wearing. She's a beautiful young lady. But if you look closely, you can just see how insecure she appears. Her hands are up near her face. And on her lap is a fashion magazine. And it's open to a picture of Jane Russell. Jane Russell was the standard of beauty at that time. And maybe because I'm a parent of two daughters, but whenever I look at a picture, either this one or a picture like this, I'm really moved by this struggle that is so common, especially to every young lady. She's trying to balance it all. All that the world tells her that she should be and who she should be and how she should look. And she asks those nagging questions. Who am I? Do I measure up? Am I beautiful? What am I made for? 
And I share that with you this morning, not only because I think it's a really poignant picture, but this morning we want to look at another portrait of a beautiful young lady who's known for her beauty, and yet we're going to see where is someone who finds her ultimate identity, not in her outward appearance, but as Dr. King uh, tells us to find it, in the content of her character. And because she understands that she was made by God and for God, she also understands something powerful, or at least comes to understand something in this story, that not only is she made by God and for God, for his glory, but that God's got her in the moment that he has got her, in the time and the place, just as God has us in the time and place that we live in. So, all right, well, before we jump into the book of Esther, I imagine most of you uh, don't necessarily think of dice and the Bible and church kind of all going together, and maybe they don't, but at least today they're going to, because uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like life is kind of like a game of chance. It just feels like you know, uh, uh, it's like the luck of the draw, and I don't know what's coming at me, and I don't, you know, it just feels like sometimes life is, is just this game of chance. And so to kind of help illustrate that and talk about what that means in the book of Esther, I want to invite Chris Williams to come on up and his son Jackson. And so Jackson, all right. Oh, and I, I got a pie. I got some dice here, and I got a pie right here. And so the Williams family is going home with a pie today. That I can tell you for sure. So, Jackson, how old are you? Ten. Do you play upward basketball? Yes. Who's your coach? My dad. This guy right here, huh? Yeah. And, and he loves you, and you love him very much. All right, so here's what we're going to do, Jackson. You are going home, or the Williams family is going home with a pie today. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to roll some dice. The most common number that you can get when you roll dice is seven, because a lot of things add up to seven. So when you roll these dice here, if you roll a seven, I'm going to give you this pie to take home. If you roll anything except a seven, I'm going to give it to your dad to take home, but we're going to give it to him in his face. So Jackson, you feel the pressure about that? I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> we mentioned you loved your dad though, right? <laughs> so, all right. So Jackson, you ready to roll? Are you nervous? You kind of hope it's not a seven, don't you? <laughs> all right, go ahead and roll them. Oh, as a matter of fact, it is a seven. So there you go. And you know, Pastor Glenn, would Pastor Glenn have thrown a, a pie in your dad's face? I know. Yeah, he said, I want to throw it too. So, hey, congratulations. Thanks, you guys. Well done. Chris, I would not have thrown that in your face. You've known me for long enough to know that that's not true. But the point I want to make is sometimes it feels like life is that way. It feels like we're just kind of cruising along, and I'm almost like I'm one bad roll away from a pie in the face, and it's beyond my control, and it's nothing I could do, and it just feels like life sometimes is beyond my control. I want to assure you, though, before we jump into this passage, that God is with you. Not only does God love you and know you, but God is with you no matter what you face. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, and you can't see him, but God is there. And his greatest promise throughout the Bible is not that I'll take all the bad stuff away. It's not like you never get a pie in your face sometimes, but his promise is I will be with you through whatever 
comes your way. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want us to see what the Bible says about this by looking at this classic story of uh, the life of Queen Esther, known for her beauty and her courage. And so uh, hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. You're going to want to open your Bible up to that ancient scripture uh, in the book of Esther. And we're going to kind of fly through kind of the 30,000 foot uh, survey of the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters long. We're going to go over all of it today. And so we need to jump into this starting by looking at some of the characters. There's a lot of just fascinating people in this story. And so the book of Esther is just one long story. And we're going to tell that story this morning, starting with the characters. The first character that you need to know is a guy by the name of Xerxes. And Xerxes is the king. He is the very powerful, but very erratic Persian king. One thing that you need to know about Xerxes is this guy loved to party. Xerxes loved to party, and you'll see that in just a second here. So the deal is, he's the king over the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire at that time was the most powerful in the world. It stretched all the way from India in the east, all the way down into Egypt, and so it was really huge. It was 127 provinces, and people from all over, all different nationalities, fell into the Persian kingdom. In fact, there were many Jewish people that were still living in this land. So just a quick reminder of the Jewish history, uh, many of them were living in Jerusalem and around Judah until 587 BC after they were unfaithful to God. The Babylonian army comes in and conquers Judah and destroys the city of Jerusalem. The temple is knocked down. Everything is flattened and the people get carried off essentially as slaves into exile. It's a terrible time in their history. And so they're under the Babylonian authority for a time. Then the Persians rise up and kind of become the superpower. And so the Persians kind of inherit all of these little tribes, including the Jewish people. They let some people go back and begin to rebuild Jerusalem and the, and the, the city around there. But many of them were still living in Persia, where King Xerxes, who was erratic and loved to party, was the king at that time. How do I know he loved to party? Well, the book opens with actually a big national festival. So all of Persia is in this time of festival, and it's not a three-day weekend. It is a 180-day festival. For six months, they have this, and what it says is that for six months, Xerxes the king displayed his wealth, right? So he just shared all this wealth around. Um, and just a little insight into Xerxes' character After 180 days, when the national festival was over, the first thing that he decides to do is throw a little after party. He's going to, he's like, hey, let's go seven more days, seven more days. And this is kind of a by invitation deal. So he invites some of the people to the king's banquet that's going to be seven days. And for seven days, the king's food and wine, it's 100% open bar, 24-7, no limits are placed. So when you get to verse 10 of chapter one uh, of Esther, it says, by the seventh day of this after party, King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine. To which I say, no duh, right? That's what we saw about him. Well, on the seventh day of the party, uh, he decides to invite his wife, Vashti. Vashti is the next character we need to meet, Queen Vashti. Um, and, and Xerxes invites Vashti, hey, come and make an appearance at this party for me and the guys. And knowing what you already just what you know about Xerxes. What do you think he wanted to show off about his wife on that day? Do you think it was her intellect? 
Do you think it was her mind? Was he like, honey, come and like do some Jeopardy questions, you know, maybe some calculus, uh, those kind of things? No, no, Xerxes wanted to show off his wife's beauty. He wanted to, to show off her body. And in this surprising, unheard of move, Vashti, the queen says, no. She says, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to parade around in front of you and a bunch of your drunk friends. I will not be treated as an object or a piece of of meat. And at the risk of really her life, she refuses to appear for the king. By the way, especially to our young ladies here this morning, boy, what what a courageous model of integrity Vashti is in this moment, right? Because there's pressure to display. And she says, no. You would think that it costs her her life to say no to the king like that, but maybe it's because he was high in spirits, as it said, or, or whatever. He actually doesn't kill Vashti, but he gets together with his advisors, and they decide, well, she's got to have some punishment, so they take the crown away, and they banish her from, from the, the town. And they say, you've got to go, and I'm going to get a new queen. And so now, as the book begins, there's a search for a new queen. This is what we know about the search in chapter 2, verse 2. It says this. It says, the king's personal attendants proposed this plan. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let the beauty treatments be given to them. Turns out it's going to be a one full year of beauty treatments. That's a long time to get ready for one date. But they're going to give them a year of, of beauty treatments. And he says, and then let the young women, I'm sorry, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king and he followed it. To which I would say, no, duh, it appealed to him. So all the beautiful ladies from 127 different provinces, all the way from India to Egypt, gathered together to see which one the king was going to choose. And among them, there was this young Jewish girl who were actually told was beautiful in form and feature. But as we'll see, she's known for much more than that because she also possessed great character and strength and conviction. Her name is Esther. She's obviously one of the heroes of the story. So if you don't know the story, somewhere along the line, Esther's parents had died. And so she was an orphan girl who was raised by an older relative by the name of Mordecai. We'll get to Mordecai in just a minute. But Esther comes together with all of these other girls uh, from all across uh, the, the, um, the nation, and she never reveals her true Jewish identity. But she does find favor with the king. And can you believe it? What a lucky twist of fate. What a coincidental roll of the dice of all of the women King Xerxes chooses Esther to be the new queen and invites her in. And what's fascinating about this, and we're going to see this time and time again, in this story that we just told you about, God's name is never mentioned explicitly. But for those of us who know Esther's God, you just know that something bigger than just chance is at work, right? It's more than just the roll of the dice that gets Esther to this position, this royal position. 
All right. Well, I mentioned that she grew up with this guy by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is the next uh, character. And to me, Mordecai is just a great character. He's really the hero in many ways. Um, His great-great-grandfather was born back in Jerusalem before the invasions and all those things, before they were carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar. But fortunately, both under the Babylonians and the Persians, these Jewish people that were carried as slaves and carried into exile, they were allowed to maintain some of their identity, some of their nationality, and even rose to positions of influence. So we read about a few of these characters, people like Daniel, people like Nehemiah that rose to influence even though they weren't living in their uh, home country. And King Xerxes is also one of, I'm sorry, not King Xerxes, Mordecai. Mordecai is also uh, one of those people who rises to power. Xerxes has a royal court, and there's representatives from all these different districts and all these different places, and Mordecai is the representative on the king's court for the Jewish people, right? So he represented them on the Jewish council. It was a position of influence. One other thing you should know about Mordecai is, can you imagine, lucky roll of the dice, one day Mordecai overhears these two guys that are plotting to overthrow and assassinate the king. And he just happens, by chance, to be in the right place at the right time to hear what's going on, and he, 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 tells uh, the king what's going to happen. These guys are caught before anything can happen. They're actually both executed. The king's life is saved because of Mordecai, and they write all of that down in this history book of Persian history, um, that Mordecai was this man who helped save the day. Well, as I said, Mordecai served in the king's council, yet he was different excuse me, from all the other representatives because he really fought to maintain his integrity. He fought to maintain his purity as a follower of Yahweh. How do we know that? Well, what you need to do is compare him to our next character for the morning. Are you guys with me so far? You need to compare him to the next character, a man by the name of Haman. Haman, and he is the villain in this whole deal. So Haman was the king's chief of staff. He was Xerxes' right-hand man. He was the highest official in the land, and this guy was proud of it. He is a very proud man. In fact, when Haman came into the room, it was his custom that everybody would bow down, except for the king. Everybody would have to bow down uh, to Haman as second in command. Even in the king's council, everyone bowed down. Every time he came in, everyone, every time, except for one guy. Mordecai. Mordecai, who apparently his father and his father's father had taught them that you don't bow down to anybody but God. Well, no surprise, Haman did not like this very much at all. Everybody else is getting with the program, but it enraged him that there's this one guy that was so full of himself that he wouldn't bow down, and so he decides that he needs to punish not only Mordecai, but he needs to punish all of Mordecai's people. Because these Jews just bug him, They are so different from everybody else. They don't go along with the program. They don't follow the Persian customs. They don't worship uh, the Persian uh, idols like everybody uh, else does. So he decides that there's going to be uh, this punishment. (coughs) And he decides that there's going to be one day where all of the Jewish people, stop me if you've heard this before, are going to be wiped out. Someone's going to plot to get rid of, extinguish all of the Jews. By the way, just an interesting note for you kind of 
Bible junkies out there, Haman is an Amalekite. The Amalekites were actually the longtime enemy of the Jewish people. They were known for their most vile idolatry. They were the ones who were most known for child sacrifice and those kind of things. You'll remember that the first Jewish king, Saul, was actually told to destroy the Amalekites, but Saul doesn't do it. And so now years later, we see that it comes back, and now the Amalekites are threatening to wipe out the Jews. So Haman comes up with this scheme one day that he is going to kill all of the Jews. And so Haman, who is very superstitious, decides that he is going to take the dice. And he takes the dice, and in Hebrew, the word is for dice is poor, or the dice or the lot. And so Haman takes the poor and he rolls the poor. We actually have a, a picture. This is an ancient um, Persian dice or a model of, of an ancient um, Persian dice, something that he would have rolled. And he takes that dice and he rolls the poor and he lands on, uh, he lands on the day of the 13th of the month of Adar. So he was rolling the dice to see what day was going to be the day that he killed all of the Jews. And it lands on something that signifies the 13th of Adar. And you guys need to remember that date, the 13th of Adar, because it is an especially important and terrifying day. By the way, in our English calendar this year in 2022, the 13th of Adar falls on March 16th. So it's not that long from now. And so on the 13th of of Adar, that was the day that the Jewish people were going to be wiped out. And so can you imagine the terror that came across the people as that date got closer and closer? They circled the date and said, this is going to be the day that we kill all of you and all of your people. In fact, this is what we read in Esther chapter 3, verse 12. I don't think I have it on the screen, but it goes like this. It says, they wrote out the script for each province in the language of all of the people about Haman's orders. And and it sent it to the governors of various provinces and the nobles of the various people. These were be written, uh, these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself, sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent to Curry to all the king's provinces, all 127 provinces, with the order, and this is the order, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Well, now the plot is starting to thicken because what Haman says goes. And so there's this law, but we also have, remember, Queen Esther, this Jewish orphan girl who is serving as the queen. But still nobody knows her nationality. She's never revealed that to the king. So that's when Mordecai goes to her with a plea. Mordecai sees all this stuff that is happening. And Mordecai, with a faith that goes much beyond just the roll of a dice, comes to Esther and says, now you have to do something. You have to go to the king. You have to plead for your people. The only problem is Esther reminds him, hey, I can't go to the king unless he calls me, right? My life could be killed, and he hasn't even called me for the last 30 days. And so what is she going to do? But Mordecai replies with this faith that goes beyond the roll of a dice, and he says, do not think, he says to Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but you have come to your royal position for such 
a time as this. You're here for this moment. Esther, you are made for this moment. In essence, she's saying, Esther, God, without ever using God's name, without ever speaking God's name, he says, Esther, God is at work. And he invites you to participate in his work, delivering his people in their time of need. And he's calling you for this time and this place. And he says, Esther, if if you don't do it, God's likely going to raise up someone else. But Esther, what if it's more than just a roll of the dice that you are in the position that you are in? What if it's not just a coincidence? What if, Esther, you were made for this moment? And we would be foolish to not pause at this point in the story and talk about our own story. Because, friends, today God is still in the deliverance business. We know that Haman's law was designed to destroy, kill, and annihilate the Jews. That was the language he used. We're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate them. Years later, Jesus, talking to his disciples, including people like us, would also say that you will have an enemy. And using very similar language, Jesus says it like this. You have an enemy, the devil, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come to deliver you from all of that. I have come to offer you life. And not just any old life, but abundant life. I am still in the deliverance business. And you guys, today, God wants to use you and me to know that abundant life, to know it, first of all, for ourselves, but also, he's called us in this moment to be the people that bring that life of deliverance and that message of the light and the goodness of of Christ. Um, We are called to be those messengers in this time. I'm not sure if, if who Sam said it. I think he said it in the first service. Might not have said it in the second service, but I'll tell you what he said in the first service. He was talking about his Muslim background, and he said, I know what it means to live in a time of darkness. He says, and now I know what it means to live in a time of light. And we have a world that is living in darkness that needs the light and the love of God. And here in 2022, there may be a lot of things that we don't like about this time. There may be a lot of things that we don't like about this place, but we are God's messengers for this moment. Throughout history, one of the fascinating things that you see about Jesus's church is they're uniquely designed for their moment in history. And it is not an accident that you live where you live and you serve where you serve and it's your job and it's your family because that is the place. And oh, by the way, who knows if here in 2022, in your life, in your job, in your family, in your neighborhood, in this church, who knows if God has you there for such a time as this. Well, here is where Esther's inner beauty really starts to take over. I think the king chose her because of her outward beauty. She was beautiful in form and feature, but now her inner beauty is really going to shine. Because while she's clearly got to be overcome with fear, uh, she knows that her life could be at risk with all this stuff. You got to hear what Esther replies uh, to uh, Mordecai. She says this in verse 15. It says, Then Esther sent a reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
pray for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids, we will fast as you do. When this is done, he says, she says this, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Man, what a courageous thing for this little Jewish orphan to share. And I really believe that there comes a time in the life of every follower of Christ where we need to step out and take some risks. To not consider, first and foremost, is this action smart? Is it, you know, is it going to work? Is it going to be popular? But with faith and courage, say, God, I know there's an easy route, but in this moment, you may not call me to the easy route. You call me to faith. And so, Lord, I step out in faith and trust you. And that's exactly what Esther says. And she knows the consequences are real. She says, if I perish, I perish. And those were not empty words. She knew that that could happen. So courageously, Esther steps into this. She goes to the palace and the king sees her looking very sad and he extends his scepter to her. He reaches out his scepter. That's how he invites her in. And so after 30 days of not being invited, he reaches out her scepter, invites her in. And he sees that she's looking sad and she says, honey, what's the matter? Sweetie, don't cry. I'll give you anything up to half half my kingdom if you'll just cheer up. By the way, why do men do this, right? Why do we do this? I mean, honey, don't cry. I would lay down my life for you, which by the way, ladies, probably just means like, I'll let you hold the remote for one night. It doesn't mean anything like that. And I think that's what's true with Xerxes. I don't think he's necessarily looking to give away half his kingdom, but he says, honey, why are you crying? I'll do anything um, for you. Um, Esther wisely at this moment doesn't spill the beans. She kind of holds back. But instead, she takes a little baby step. And she says, well, I want to have a dinner party. And I want it to be just me and you and Haman. Well, that's hardly half the kingdom. And so the Xerxes agrees and it gets set up. In the meantime, Haman's anger is raging at Mordecai, the guy who won't bow down to him. And it just continues to burn. And so to get ready for this big day, the 13th of Adar, he also builds a 75-foot pole, this tower that he figures he's either going to hang or maybe the word is impale Mordecai uh, from it to show his power and his hatred. Well, on the night before the party, remember it's going to be just Esther and the king and Haman. On the night before the, the, that party, imagine the coincidence, the lucky roll of the dice that on that very night, the king can't sleep. He's tossing and turning, and uh, I'm someone who sometimes suffers from insomnia sometimes, and so it's good to hear that God can use even a sleepless night for his glory, because this is what happens. Xerxes can't sleep, and he, um, he so he sends to, uh, to his, his, his guys, and he says, bring me a book. I want you to read me a bedtime story, right? That's, I guess, what the king gets when it's time to go to bed. And he says, and I want you to tell me a story about my favorite person. I want you to tell me a story about me. And so they go and they get the history books and they open up the Persian history and begin to read it to him. By the way, that's like the classic sleeping pill in the old days. Read this Persian history to him um, and that'll just knock you out. Um, But that's not what happens to Xerxes on that day. As they're reading to him, in fact, just the opposite happens. Because they're reading and they come to this story about this guy earlier who had found out about this assassination plot that it was against the king. And as they were reading, the king realizes, wow, that guy really did me a huge favor and we have never appreciated him. We have never done anything to honor that 
guy. So the first thing the next morning, the king calls in Haman, his chief of staff, and he says, hey, there is this guy in my kingdom who really deserves uh, to be honored. What should we do to honor this guy who deserves all these accolades here in my kingdom? Knowing what we know about Haman, who does Haman think he's talking about? He thinks he's talking about himself. And so he's like, oh, well, king, you know, if there's this guy you need to honor, you should go big on this. You should bring out the royal clothes and you should put him in the royal clothes. And you should bring out the royal chariot and the royal horse and, and you should create this great parade all throughout the streets. And everybody should come and line the streets and cheer for this person. He should be a real Persian hero. And the king says, hey, that is a great idea, Haman. Why don't you set that up for a man by the name of... Mordecai. And Haman, oh, by the way, why don't you lead the parade? Well, this just burns Haman, but at least he still has the banquet with the king the, 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 to go to the next day. And so he goes to the dinner uh, that next day or that next night. And again, King Xerxes sees Esther and her heart's heavy and she's uh, sad. And so he says, honey, what can I give you? Ask anything. Remember, up to half of my kingdom, just don't be sad anymore. And now here's the moment of truth. And the, the, the queen of beauty and courage is ready to talk. And this is what she says. She says, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is what I'm asking for. Would you just grant me my life? Would you save my life, Xerxes? And Xerxes looks at her and says, what are you talking about? Who could be threatening your life? You're the queen. And Esther points directly at Haman, and the whole truth comes out. It's that man, and through his hate and his pride, he is trying to destroy, kill, and annihilate my people. She uses her, uh, his exact words. Well, of course, the king can't believe this of, of what's going on. And so remember that 75-foot uh, gallows that, that Haman had bought to put Mordecai on, to hang Mordecai on? The king says, hang Haman from that very spot. And the God who controls the rolls of the dice, the roll of the dice, turns things around in a way but nobody but God could have ever saw coming. That is almost the end of the story of the book of Esther. But don't forget the 13th of Adar, and that day still coming. Because in Persian law, once a law was passed, it couldn't, you couldn't just wipe it out. And so uh, they still had that to, uh, to deal with. And, and so they, they couldn't take back that issue. So what does happen is that Mordecai actually gets promoted and he takes Haman's job as kind of the chief of staff. And a new law is passed under Mordecai's influence where the Jews could at least defend themselves on that day. So even uh, if, you, uh, if you can't believe it, even the 13th of Adar a day that was meant for destruction, turns out to be a day of victory for God's people and glory for God. And I don't know if you know this, but still today, every 13th of Adar, this year it's March 16th, Jews from all across the world get together and they celebrate the Feast of Purim. You've heard of the Feast of Purim before? What is the Feast of Purim? It's the Feast of Dice. It's the feast of lots when they remember that God is in control. 
And on that day, the 13th of Adar, all around the world, they dress up. It's a big celebration. They dress up in costumes. They exchange gifts. They celebrate. It's actually kind of a big party day in a lot of places around the world. And one of the things that they always faithfully do is they read the book of Esther. And they remember the story of God caring for them and preserving them. And every time in the story, when they come to the name of Haman, all of the people boo and hiss. And every time they come to the name of Mordecai and Esther, all of the people cheer wildly to celebrate the courage and the faith that brought them their deliverance. And so as we conclude this morning, I got to just ask you to consider a couple things. One of the things that you may have noticed if you've ever read this book before, and I mentioned it a couple times, something fascinating about the book of Esther is the name of God never really appears anywhere in the whole book. In fact, there's some people who say, how could it be a book of the Bible that, you know, it doesn't even mention God? And they say, maybe it shouldn't even be in the Bible. And yet the reality is why the book of Esther may not mention the name of God, God's fingerprints are all over the story. Just like God's fingerprints are all over your life. In fact, consider this verse. This is Proverbs 16.33 from the New Living Translation. It says this. It says, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. You guys, let that sink in for a minute. We roll the dice. We think we control our life. We think fate controls our life. We think destiny controls our life. But God in his perfect sovereignty controls our life destiny. We were made for this. We were made by God, and we were made for God, and we were made for this moment. And so as we think about that, let me just close with a a couple questions. And the first one is this. What is your Adar the 13th? What is it that brings you fear? What is, is it that seems too big for you? It seems beyond your control. It it, it just causes anxiety. You know, we all have those things that seem bigger than us. And can I tell you something? The reality is, it may be bigger than you. It may be beyond your control. But the point is, is that God holds those things. And even the difficult things that we walk through, we don't walk through them alone. There is nothing that is too big for God to deal with. He even takes the 13th of Adar and turns it into something. And if you are in Jesus Christ, your Adar, the 13th, holds no power over you because you are secure in Jesus Christ, not just for this life, but for eternity. Second question that I want to ask you, and all of us really need to ask ourselves as we read this story of Esther, is what situation does God have me in for such a time as this? What is God looking to do through you and your situation if you would step out in boldness and faith and courage? What is it? for you, that you were made for such a time as this. Well, hey, as we conclude, uh, the book of Esther actually ends with an explanation of the Feast of Purim. Uh, And so what we're going to do today is I want to celebrate a little New Testament Feast of Purim. So here's what I need. I need everybody to just stand to your feet. And uh, this is what they're going to be doing on the 13th of Adar all around the world. As I said, when they read the story, they boo and they cheer. And so we're going to do kind of a little New Testament version of that. And so I'm going to read a couple scriptures to you, and there's going to be a few certain words in there. And when these words come, I want you to boo or cheer. So whenever I read the word sin, 
I want you to boo. Whenever I read the word death, I want you to boo. Whenever I read the word Satan, I want you to boo, to drown out those words. But whenever you hear the word life, well, I want you to cheer. And whenever I say the name Jesus or Christ, I want you to cheer or applaud. You understand? Can you do it? All right, you guys ready? All right, we've got the scriptures up on the screen, so let's do it together. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life has, has set me free from the law of sin and death. So what shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor Satan, nor anything present in the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. One more verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. One more time. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Amen.